0: Live Podcast presents History for the Future. Lessons from a Ravonia trialist.
1: This month marks 30 years since Nelson Mandela was released from 27 years in prison. Most of his fellow trialists were released five months earlier in October 1989. Only two of the original Ravonia trialists are still living: Andrew Mlangeni and Dennis Goldberg. This is the story of one of the men. Andrew Mlangheni, who turned 94 in June. He spoke to Pepper Green over six hours about his life, his role in the liberation struggle and his reflections on the quarter century of democracy he has witnessed.
2: I meet Andrew Mlangheni, the veteran ANC leader at his house in Dube, Soweto, the same house he was arrested in before the infamous Rivonia trial began. He was born in 1925, just north of Bethlehem in the Free State on a farm. His parents were labour tenants there. His father died when he was six. The family had to leave. Four years ago, he went down with his daughters and grandchildren back to Bethlehem to try to find his father's grave. Uh,
3: I went down in a bus. Uh, I hired a bus where I took my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren They've been worrying me and saying they wanted to see the grave of their great-grandfather. So I took them down there. It was the first time I go there since 1953. Uh, The farm belonged to a Mr. Nodier. He had two sons. I don't know their names. They were almost the same age as my other two brothers who have passed away. And um, after the burial of my father, you know, according to some African custom, it's not practiced by every African clan uh, group, but my group to which I belong, the Melangenis, when the head of a family dies, his uh, younger brother takes over. The family. He becomes the new father in the new family, so to speak. The idea being that he should bring help in bringing up the children of his elder brother.
2: His uncle already had a wife and children, but his mother became his other wife. In 1934,
3: she gave birth to twins, two girls. One is still alive, and the other one has passed away. There were also twins. There were three sets of twins. You were also a
2: set of twins? I was a twin. Yes.
3: Yeah, I was a twin with uh, my twin sister.
2: And is she still alive?
3: No, 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 no. She died in 1989, a few weeks before we were released from prison. I applied perhaps a few months, you know, it should be a few months before uh, we were released. I applied to Pretoria to attend the funeral of my twin sister. But Pretoria turned down my application.
2: Her name was Emily, but she was known as Emma. In early 1932, when Andrew was six, his father Mattia died. His biographer Mandla Matebule describes how he remembers hearing about it.
0: The usually busy and noisy time of the late afternoon fell silent. The children, by now curious, began to play quietly, trying to catch what was said inside. Soon, they heard their mother sobbing and the low voice of old lady Musia trying to calm her. Then Adeta's sobbing became a loud cry and all the playing outside suddenly stopped. The children looking at each other in wonder. Old Lady Musia came out and sent two of the older children to call two more old women, ordering the rest of the children to stop playing and gather quietly in the other hut, in the yard. I letter continued to cry as neighbors streamed into a homestead until almost all the households in the neighborhood were represented. Some went into the hut, some sat outside. They all looked sad, and hardly talked above a whisper. As the old children cried, some shouting, Papa, Papa, the younger ones, including six-year-old Andrew, realized that something terrible had happened to their father. This was soon confirmed by old lady Musia, who came to the hut and told them that their father, Matia, was no more. Everyone in the family had hoped that Madia would soon be better and back at work. In fact, he had been coughing for so long that people had got used to it. Sometimes when he was coming back home, his wife and children would be made aware that he was approaching the homestead through his cough, which had become a sort of signature tune.
2: Mattia and Aleta had been married for 28 years and had had 10 children, including two sets of twins. Aleta had another set of twins after she married Mattia's brother. Mlangeni spent several minutes in his house in Soweto trying to locate an iPad to find a photograph of his father's grave. He calls his granddaughter Pumi to help him.
3: When we went to the Free State, yes. to my father's grave, yes. were you there? Yes, I was there.
2: Eventually, they determined his father had died in January 1932. When he'd gone down to the Free State in 2015 to try to locate the grave, the descendants of the Nadees who had owned the farm when his father was alive were there, and they were cooperative, he says, in helping them find the grave. His parents were labor tenants, meaning they could live on the farm as long as they worked on it. Usually, labor tenants were not paid. The
3: farm belonged to a Mr. Nadea. He had two sons. I don't know their names. They were almost the same age as my other two brothers who have passed away. And um, after the burial of my father, you know, according to some African custom, it's not practiced by every African clan group, but my group to which I belong, the Melangenis, When the head of a family dies, his uh, younger brother takes over the family. He he becomes the new father in the new family, so to speak. The idea being that uh, he should help in bringing up the children of his uh, elder brother.
2: When his mother married his father's brother... She gave birth to another set of twins. In 1934, two girls. This brought the total set of twins to three. He was one with his twin sister, Emily, whom they called Emma. When his family had to leave the farm in 1935, they moved to what he called the location outside Bethlehem. He moved in with an older brother who was working for the railways. He stayed there until his grandmother, his father's mother, died, then moved to Krinstadt, where one of his older brothers had a house. It was here he started school. There had been no schools for black children near the Bethlehem farm, Main Hartfontein, so his father Matia had used his spare time to teach his sons to read and write so they could read the Bible and letters from friends and family, writes Matebulo.
0: The Mlangen family had experienced land dispossession through conquest and trikar, long before they split into three groups living on three separate farms. Later in their lives they became the victims of state police supported by an array of laws including the most systematic land dispossession by the state that came into effect with the Native Land Act of 1913. The main purpose of the act was to make more land available to white farmers and to impoverish black people through dispossession and the prohibition of any form of farming that permitted some self-sufficiency. This meant that they became dependent on employment for survival. Uh, White farmers had repeatedly complained that black people refused to work for them as servants and laborers, thus creating a pool of cheap Of free labor for the white farms and the mines. Then there was also the purpose of enforcing more consistently the policy of racial segregation. 1938,
3: I was still there, 1939, Germany attacked. The Second World War, Holland, I think. And in 1939, yeah. the British yeah. declared war against Germany. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to get my dates. The mm. war is not relevant, but mm. it will help me mm. to remember. I'm saying in, in end of 38, I went back to Bethlehem. 39, 1940 came to Johannesburg with my twin sister.
2: Some online biographies of Mlangeni mistakenly say he was born in Prospect Township, which was east of Johannesburg, and declared with a number of other racially mixed or predominantly black urban areas near the city centre a slum. It was demolished by 1938, its residents all evicted. The reason for this emerged as Mlangeni became more deeply involved in politics.
3: Now, the reason why... I had always said I was born in Prospect Township. In later years, towards the end of '49, ANC had become a powerful organization in the country. And uh, people who were very active in the ANC, when they got arrested, the National Party government exported them, banished them to their homelands. There were no homelands at the time, but to the places where they were born. If you were born in the Free State, they will send you to the Free State. If you were born in Botswana, they will send you to Botswana, uh, and so on and so forth. In other words, the, you get arrested, uh, you lose the case. You go and serve your case, your your sentence. Your After you've served your sentence, they banish you. For me, to prevent being banished to the free state, I then said I was born in Prospect Township. They could never send me back to <laughs> Prospect Township. Prospect Township was no longer there.
2: He moved to Pimville in Soweto. My brother was the uh, one in Pinville?
3: was a man who was interested in politics uh, especially local politics uh, local politics at the time meant uh, the advisory board politics uh, advisory board politics was where in the township you find a superintendent, the white superintendent and uh, At the end of every year, you elect four advisory board members. Their functions are to inform the city council of Johannesburg of the requirements of the people in their township. How do they do that? They meet the superintendent, the white superintendent, every month and they discuss the the needs of the township. Their job is to inform the superintendent and the superintendent in turn informs uh, the city council of Johannesburg. These are the requirements of the people of Pinville.
2: Every area of Soweto, Orlando, Pirinaledi Naledi and so on, had a separate advisory board.
3: So my brother was interested in that kind of politics. Every time he goes to a meeting, I would accompany him. And listen, what is it that these people are discussing with a white man? He's the only white man. The rest are black people. I was not the only one who was listening to the discussions. But other other residents who were interested also came and listened. It was always in the evening when everybody has come back from work.
2: Not far from where he lived was a place called Tabu Basio, named after the mountain in what is now Lesotho, which was the fortress of the 19th century Basotho king Meshweshwe. It was a meeting place of an array of organisations, political and non-political.
3: We are not staying far away from there. I used to go there and listen Communist Party members, decide the ANC, uh, there were so there were not so many political parties at the time. Yeah, it was largely the ANC and the Communist Party. Uh, the Communist Party was a dominant organization at the time, and uh, because it was still legal, it was not banned. So I used to go there and listen, and my listening of discussions in these meetings helped in politicizing me. In
2: 1943, he enrolled at St. Peter's Secondary School, where he found that one of the teachers who taught science and maths was Oliver Reginald Tambo, who was to become president of the African National Congress. When he was at Pimville, he'd supported an organization, newly formed, called the Pymville Student and Ex-Students League. Now,
3: when I go to St. Peter's, by the way, I had a cousin, Eric in church, who was there before me. Uh, and uh, I, I said to Eric, man, uh, we, we are required to form a branch of the Pimple Students and Ex-Students League here at St. Peter's. Eric says, man, I think we must go and consult O.R. first. O.R. was ta- Oliver Tambo. We must go and consult O.R. first. Get his opinion on that. ANC Youth League had just been formed in 1944, and uh, they were the founders, as you know, yeah. O.R. Mandela, Sisulu, Lambert and others. So when we went to to see Oliver Tambo. He says, Chaps, you must stop immediately. If the principal gets to know about this, in 24 hours, you'll be expelled from the school. You must stop forming anything. But OR did not have much influence on us, on me in particular, because he stopped us from f- forming a branch of the Pure Students student and ex League. Uh, as I say, I don't know whether he thought we were forming something <laughs> Uh, to oppose the ANC leagues. In
2: 1945, Malangeni joined the Young Communist League. It was around this time he began to say he was born in Prospect Township, not on a farm near Bethlehem in the Free State. It was here he met Elsa Watts, the Administrative Secretary, whose sister was Hilda Bernstein. His cell was led by Ruth First, the activist and journalist married later to Joe Slovo. She was killed by a letter bomb in Mozambique in 1982.
3: You could not have more than five people in one cell. It had to be small, although it was not illegal at the time. The Communist Party was not illegal at the time. Uh, but the cells had to be small to be manageable and uh, be able to comprehend Uh, what has been said about Marxism, uh, Leninism, and so on.
2: By the time the Communist Party was banned in 1950, Mlangeni's activism had temporarily waned. He had got married that year to June Ledwaba. Their first child, a daughter Maureen, had been born the year before. In quick succession, they had a second child, Sylvia, in 1950, and then June gave birth to a boy in 1953, whom Mlangeni named after his father, Matia. He was also known as Aubrey.
3: My concentration was with the family. We were still young. And in 1951, I got a second child. We got a second child, Sylvia. And uh, you can see my political activities also declined. I had a family to look after.
2: Since 1947, he'd been working for an engineering firm, Jeffrey Gallion.
3: I I met a friend of mine. In the train, and we were going to work in the morning. And he said to me, Man, at the place where I'm working, they are looking for a young man such as yourself who knows how to read and write. I wouldn't say educated, because i just done my JC. To do what? To deliver letters on a bicycle. Oh, no, no, I was doing that at the time. Uh, for a week, I got, I got a job in 1947 where I was delivering le- letters of amalgamated paper, amalgamated something, something. I was there for one week and then this friend of mine got, a, got me a job at Jeffrey Galleon where when I got there, I was interviewed by the secretary A very good man. Uh, His name was Tom. Uh, I forget his surname. He said, you are going to work in the drawing room. There's a machine there. They'll show you how to operate it.
2: It was a duplicating machine. Later, his firm was one of the first in South Africa to buy a gestetner, a machine that revolutionized the copying process. On Saturdays when the staff were off, he'd go to the office and use it to print ANC leaflets.
3: It was a good job. I was a highly paid black man there, three pounds, four shillings and eight
2: pence. He worked there for ten years, and then he said he did something very stupid, he will not say what, and was fired. After that, he worked as a bus driver for Patco. Meanwhile, he became involved in the youth league. One morning in 1952, Matabula writes, he was at Orlando Railway Station with a friend waiting for a train to work when, quote, a tall man carrying a briefcase suddenly emerged from the crowds, rushing to catch a train and headed towards the second-class coaches. Simon Malaza, his friend, stopped him and said to Andrew, let me introduce you to our future African lawyer, Nelson Mandela. And in
3: 1954, I qualified to be a full-fledged member of the ANC then, in 1956, I became the Secretary of the Region. Our region was the biggest region in the whole of the uh, country because of the number of uh, townships we had there in Soweto. We had, when I left that position, 29 branches of the ANC in Soweto, including Dobsonville. Dobsonville originally people there came from Rodipot and came to Dobsonville. It fell under our area.
2: In nineteen fifty three too the Communist Party was revived under a new name, the South African Communist Party, rather than its previous incarnation, the Communist Party of South Africa. He became a member in nineteen fifty five, but he played a deliberately low key role.
3: I am a backroom boy. I operate from behind. <laughs> Hence, the, the title of my book, The Backroom Boy, comes from how I was operating politically. Although I held this important position, but the police did not know much about me. i I was a person who did not want to hold leading positions in the organization. But I helped those who want to become leaders. I work for them, promote them, push them to the front, and make sure that they get elected. Those are the people who get arrested ultimately.
2: (laughs) Mlangeni may not have considered himself to be one of those who get arrested in the late 50s, but he was soon to become much more than a backroom boy. I'm Pippa Green, and in the next episode, we detail his move into military training and his extraordinary trip across the world to Mao Tse-tung's China in 1961.
1: This podcast was researched and compiled by journalist Pippa Green. Additional readings from the book The Backroom Boy, Andrew Mlangeni's story, were done by the author of that book, Mantla Matebuleh. That book is available online via the big retailers and vitzpress.co.za. The podcast was edited and packaged by me, Jean-Michel. And for more interesting podcasts, please visit livepodcast.fm and subscribe.
0: History for the future. Lessons from a Rivonia Trilis is presented by Live Podcasts. For
1: more of great radio and podcast content, visit lifepodcast.fm.